0: to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. My name is Dan DeBreeze, and today I am talking with a whole bunch of people about the creation of the Colgate LGBTQ Digital History Project and its complementary archive of audio interviews. The folks who led that effort are here with us today, including Professor of Mathematics and LGBTQ Studies, Ken Valenti, who is also, I believe, joining us from sunny England.
1: Well, actually, it's dark at the moment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we have Colgate University Archivist and Head of Special Collections and University Archives, Professor Sarah Keene. Professor Valente was Director of LGBTQ Studies at Colgate from 2009 to 2012, and he served as the Director of University Studies from 2013 to 2016. He earned his bachelor's degree from California Polytechnic State University, his master's from San Luis Obispo, and his PhD from the University of Oregon. Professor of University Libraries Sarah Keene came to Colgate after working at Smith College and Cornell University, She earned her bachelor's at Alma College and her master's of science in information at the University of Michigan. Uh, In addition to professors Valente and Keene, we're also joined by assistant professor of LGBTQ studies, Paul Humphrey, who will be including the digital history that we're gonna talk about here in one of his courses this semester. And we also have students, Jacob Licker, a member of the class of 2021, and Mackenzie Harrison, a member of the class of 2022. And they both uh, helped with collecting the interviews for this project. So welcome all to the podcast. I will uh, start things off with question one here. And I think, uh, you know, to, to set the stage, it would be good to give a little bit of background about this umbrella project here that is the LGBTQ Digital History Project. So Ken and Sarah, I'm I'm hoping you can just kind of start at the beginning. Talk a little bit about that for for anybody who doesn't know what that project is and explain um, how it came to be.
1: The project was envisioned um, around the time of the bicentennial, although I'd been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of work around the ideas of activism and in particular LGBTQ or what I'll probably just say queer activism in the academy uh, for a number of years, but as the bicentennial approached I was thinking about making that work real um, at Colgate and what that might mean and what that might look like. And so in just talking about this with Professor Keene, I mean we both understand LGBTQ history well enough to know that those lives and experiences have not been written into history and in fact, sometimes have been written out of history. So if one wants to examine what we might call queer activism on, on, in any location, in particular at Colgate, finding that material can be very difficult. But luckily, we have a wonderful archive at the university. And so the project really sort of started there with looking for material that we held within the university archives that could document, document sorry, Colgate's queer history. But at some point early in the process, and in fact, as I was developing this syllabus for the course that would be attached to this work, that's LGBT 220 Explorations in LGBTQ History, um, I was thinking a lot about oral history and the way that oral history is a way that we reclaim history that's lost to us. And so we're actively engaging with the lives and experiences of LGBTQ identified or allied people. So quite early on, I realized that I wanted the project to not only have an element that involved the archive, but another element that added to the archive. And so we're attempting in some ways to fill, to document the the queer activism that we see at Colgate and have seen at Colgate, but at the same time, add content to the archive through the recordings of lives and experiences.
2: Well, I'll add on to what Professor Valente said. Um, The germ of this idea and the origin of the the project is really Professor Valente's vision for you know, creating a more inclusive history. Um, and it's really fantastic that he approached me about incorporating the university archives in this. So one of the first steps we did with that first class is actually creating the queer activism timeline, you know, uncovering some of those hidden histories, those hidden stories that we don't necessarily know that much about um, or that haven't been include, included in our broader historical narrative already, bring them to light to understand, okay, what do we already have? What documentation already exists? So we can then work on beginning that very long and slow process of filling in the gaps. So that first class was a lot of discovery of what do we have? Um, I think Jake is nodding. He's, uh, he was in that class. I remember having those in-class sessions and watching the students go through the uh, women's studies uh, uh, program records and uncovering you know, news clippings and other reports, going through the LGBTQ initiatives records and finding the first advocates newsletter. Um, I think Jake had the pleasure of going through the late 1990s web archive and seeing what Colgate was communicating on its website about the LGBTQ programs or even wasn't communicating. That's another interesting piece to that. Um, so that early phase was a lot of discovery, creating that timeline, um, and then working to then create those oral histories to then begin to fill in those gaps has been part of this longer arc.
0: I guess, what it was the first, I guess, um, piece of, archival material that you were able to find that referenced either queer activism or queer life at Colgate?
1: Well, when I start, first started speaking with Professor Keene about this, she uh, let me know that the archive held a recording, a WRCU recording from 1970, I'm gonna say, the, let's say just to the early 70s, So a WRCU recording of an hour-long program that spoke to the establishment of what was then called the Gay Hotline. And and she asked me, did I know about this recording? I had no idea that such a recording existed. It was before my time at Colgate. But uh, to have that available to us was a a wonderful kind of starting point. And and so I, I would say for me, that was one of the first things I became aware of as being part of the archive and the things we could find within the
0: archive. But how many students have been involved in this project? Oh, let's see.
1: So the first, this has been a sort of three year project in, in terms of organizing my LGBT220 class around this project. And so I think the first group of students in fall of Eighteen was about eight or I would say nine students um, in fall of nineteen twelve and in the fall of twenty fourteen students. So I should be able to do the math
0: on that, but <laughs>
3: I won't so,
1: embarrass myself.
3: So you have
0: kind of two major components here. One is the timeline, and then one are these oral histories. Um, and that second component of the oral histories, um, which is now accessible online, and we can include links to all of this in the show notes, um, for people that want to check them out. Um, I I'm I'm curious as to why, um, an oral history was done in that nature, or if I, I guess how how did you decide to go down the route of a timeline and an oral history? Is it kind of like you wanted to have these voices illuminate what was found in the past, you know, or, um, just some of the thought behind that.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the first decision I reached a, on this was, um, influenced heavily by pedagogy and, and my over enthusiasm, I, I can often get ahead of myself. And, um, so It seemed right to me to start the class and start a relationship with the archive by creating the timeline. I felt for a group of students who spanned all the class years, from first year to senior, um, to task them with working in the archive, working closely with Professor Keen, and creating a timeline as a foundational piece of work that would be manageable in one semester. I had already been thinking about uh, another layer uh, that would become uh, the oral history component of the project from the beginning. But I I was afraid that would be too much for students to take on in one semester. So we have the timeline. The timeline uh, was more or less completed in the fall semester of 2018 and then went live the following spring as a a resource people could get access online, but it's a work in progress. We, we revisit it. We're updating it. In fact, I have some things I will talk to Mackenzie and Jake about in terms of updating the timeline in our next meeting, but it's, it's a work in progress. So then we, I envision the oral histories as then allowing us to link those what are basically text-based text-based content on the digital timeline with perhaps extracts from recorded testimonials. So the oral history were envisioned as a way of enriching the timeline and, and, and always enriching um, the contents and the material we have available to us. And um, in the second and third iterations of the course, um, the work of the timeline is, as I say, been ongoing, but it kind of moved into the background so that Pedagogically speaking, I could focus the last two iterations of the course on oral histories, their significance to LGBTQ history, and some consideration of the challenges and the opportunities that are associated with oral history and how that work is done so and, and that becomes a, quite a bit of content in in a single course, so the time it was it was logistical pedagogical uh, in, in, in in deciding to do the timeline first and then
0: collect the oral histories later. Okay, so now we're gonna play a few clips from the Digital History Project. Um, some of the voices that you will hear are Paul Rader, uh, class of 73, Barb West, class of 89, Barry Forbes, uh, class of 78, and Xavier Publis, class of 13.
3: So, but there really was no, uh, there was no uh, positive reinforcement um, at uh, the university. There was clearly nothing like there is today, but there wasn't anywhere else. I mean, there wasn't a uh, you know, gay student group uh, to, to uh, say that you were gay was pretty much as um, you know, committing um, social suicide, um, that uh, you know, gays would be mocked, they would be shunned. There were a few effeminate people I knew. Uh, one was a good friend, um, and uh, he had a girlfriend, so that, that so he could pass. But nevertheless, uh, you know, he had a crush on me, and uh, he wanted to fool around. I said, "No, no, no." But uh, but he was he, he was willing to uh, to go through electroshock therapy to 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 be cured. Of being, uh, but uh, ultimately, that that was he never did do anything. But that was the way we were conditioned. This was something that um, back in those days. Uh, you were a sexual pervert, Uh, you were um, uh, a sinner in the eyes of the church, you were a a criminal because of sodomy laws, Uh, you were um, a a, a sexual predator of young boys, huh, no, I I, I want a man, I don't want a boy, Mm. Um, but all all these horrible things, and I believed it, this is what we were taught, and God was going to go to hell, and somehow we would... Get out of this phase, and you know, and, and whatever. And we honestly thought that because there was no real positive role models, there was nobody really to talk to. Um, and at least we had the four of us who hung out together. But we we would go out on dates with women. We would we'd be on the dance floor, and we really were dancing with each other. And, the, and these girls we were, we were sort of their, our beards. Um, so it, it was you know that part was unfortunate, um, but. Uh, Nevertheless, you know, I, I never had a bad experience when I was there because no one really knew except the, the core of us. Um, you know, we are deeply in the closet.
4: The fact that I never had any terrible um, experience in, and Colgate has to be the most sort of patriarchal place I've ever uh, been, um, and nothing terrible happened. And so... Um, Based on that, it probably gave me a lot more confidence that when I left Colgate and went to, because I went immediately to, into an MA PhD program, and I was immediately out to everybody there, students, faculty, everybody, and it, probably the the confidence of having you know built up sort of little baby steps at Colgate. Um, Meant that I was never going back in the closet ever again. Like if I could sort of come out in this context, I can come out in any context. We evolved from the Gay Hotline uh, to sex education to a sex uh, booklet, and that's when, in my so- in my senior year, I started the Gay Support Group, which was the first organization at Colgate uh, focusing on gays. Now, the reason I called it a Gay Support Group, I wanted pe- didn't want people to feel Feel like they were gay if they went to it. And so I said, This is for gays, straights, bi's, whatever, to talk about this. We had topics like what does a, a hotline counselor do? Or uh, what happens when your, your roommate comes out to you as being straight? Uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. And it was on set every Sunday night in Alton Lounge in the Student Union. And that's where we got the first group going for uh, gays and lesbians, bisexuals, etc On Colgate.
5: The Manifondriks is probably one of the things I'm proudest of at Colgate, um, is that group. Um, So and one interesting thing about that group um, is the Constitution. So um, when Danny and I rewrote the Constitution, um, most, um, if not all other club um, constitutions said um, he slash she, And me, being the non-binary troublemaker I am, um, wrote the Constitution using Z here pronouns, Um, so using gender-neutral language. um, Instead of using singular they, uh, for clarity purposes, I used um, uh, Z here, also because they were my pronouns. And I was just like, "Mm, I'm going to write this in. Uh, (laughs) So I wrote it. um, The Initially... um, the the guy who is um, sort of our liaison with um, student government uh, was just like, I don't know if this will get passed and approved with this language, but we'll try it. Um, and it did, um, that we didn't have to change it. Um, so as far as I know, um, Mitch Fondrakes was the first um, student club constitution to have um, fully certainly the first one to use the here pronouns in the constitution, but I believe the first to use completely gender
0: neutral language. I, I do want to ask Mackenzie and Jacob, um, how many interviews did each of you do? Um, how did you develop the questions? What kind of questions were you asking of these alumni? And, um, you know, how did they come to be?
6: So when I took LGBT220 with Professor Valente in fall of 2019, um, Part of our coursework for the semester was working as a class to create our original interview guide. Um, We did a lot of readings about oral history. Um, Professor Valente brought in one of his friends who teaches at another university um, who does a lot of oral history work to talk to us kind of about how this works, what sort of things we should be asking. Um, And so then as a class, we developed this interview guide and then his class this fall in fall 2020 kind of added to it and adjusted to it based on everything that we had learned in all the interviews that we had done since my class originally created some questions.
7: Yeah, uh, I started in the fall of 2018 so I was part of the um, I guess you could say like inaugural classes as far as creating the timeline and jumping into the, the project and that was uh, my sophomore year. So I remember going in the next year, visiting Professor Valente's class in, in fall of 2019, um, and sort of learning about this oral history project and, and seeing the ways in which it will be added onto um, the timeline that already existed. So I was I was very I remember being very excited about it. And um, so then working as Professor Valente's research assistant, and then Mackenzie joins us uh, a little later in the the spring of um, 20 no uh, yeah. yeah spring of 20 um, we started doing oral histories that the classes you know, weren't assigned. So whether it was an alumni who reaches out at, a, at an inconvenient time as far as like the class setup goes or who had something to add regarding the timeline. So I did an, an interview with uh, uh, an alumni who reached out to Professor Valente specifically talking about you know, some flaws he saw in the timeline. And I thought it was really interesting to work directly with information that I had found and written. Um, based off of you know just an oral conversation. And then this year, we've both been working to reach out to other folks um, you know tangential to the university. I know Mackenzie through her work with Haven has been, do- been doing interviews that are both beneficial to Haven's history and our history here. And I've been um, working with contacts of folks I met as a first year student who are now alumni and worked here as staff as well to get their experiences.
0: Were there any um, in, in conducting these interviews? Were there any themes or any commonalities that things that kept coming up over and over? Did or was there was there any kind of thread that you were able to follow, or did you find that experiences were largely different, you know, depending on the person?
7: One thing that stood out to me, at least, was uh, sort of this like theme of persistence, you know, um, persistence, and I guess by virtue resistance with it, because. Uh, all too often, especially like some of the earlier interviews I did with uh, with alumni who, who graduated in a time where, you know, there wasn't a page on Colgate's website for LGBTQ initiatives, LGBTQ studies. You know, a common theme was that we were here, there were speakers happening, there was organizing happening, there was sort of support where when this was like pushed down as something that was deemed more invisible or outside of, of the norms of Colgate. And then Moving on later, we see, uh, I saw personally like experiences of of alumni talking about their own, you know, survival and thriving on campus. Like what it looks like to continue to just exist on this campus to make Colgate their own place. So I think that theme of just, you know, persisting um, through everything uh, was pretty common. Yeah, I
6: think especially the interviews with alumni um, and, you know, especially being a student here now, I think there are just a lot of commonalities in like the student experience at Colgate. Um, The first interview that I did when I was in Professor Valente's class was with someone who graduated in 1989. Um, And I remember just like doing that first interview and being really surprised how much of what she was saying I was able to connect with just as like someone who's a student at the same school. Um, And so I think that, and you know, even this morning I was doing an interview with someone who graduated like 16 years ago um, in 2005. And it was the same thing, you know, they were talking about things that I was like, oh yeah, like I also go hang out in the Women's Study Center. And that's something that the alumni who I talked to in 1989 also talked about. It was like, a different iteration of the Women's Studies Center, but it was still like just these themes because it's the same places. It's a lot of the same ideas. Um, and so I think that like it's really highlighted a lot of the things that are kind of at the core of the Colgate student experience.
0: Some of these interviews are long too. I mean, there some of them are about an hour long and, and generally you have two with each alumni, right? Um, are there times where they become difficult? and And if so, I guess, you know,
7: how have you dealt with that? I mean, besides one of the obvious uh, moments that comes to mind was uh, I was in the middle of an interview just this last semester, um, and we were not interviewing in uh, a a studio like we we normally would. I was working from my from my apartment, and the the fire drill uh, <laughs> the fire alarm went off. So when you when you ask that question, that's the first thought that comes to mind. But thinking about the flow of conversation of of sharing experience, one of the things I struggled with at the beginning was. Um, something Professor Valente taught us when we were talking about oral histories, which was sort of like sitting back and it's not a conversation and it's not an interview, but it's more of like a, a stage. Like you're setting up questions for people to share their, their experiences, to share their lives. And I found there were so many moments, like Mackenzie was saying, where I related so directly with what the alumni was talking about that I wanted to uh what the alumni were talking about that I wanted to to share to you know, to take a moment and just talk back and forth what it's like now. Um, so that was something that was was difficult, but as far as, you know, filling the time or filling the space, I don't think that's something I've ever struggled with. I feel like people really want to share their experiences here.
1: Yeah, that's something I, I've noticed and I mean, it was an interesting part of the project early on and, and um, Jake is just picking up on it. I mean, our alumni are so generous. And and they're this incredible resource. But at the same time, I knew one of the big challenges would be that they're as interested in the students as the students are interested in the alarms. So um, how to keep it from becoming a conversation. And I I have to say, listening to the recordings that the students have done and and Mackenzie and Jake continue to do. what I'm impressed by in in many of these recordings are where the students understood the importance of silence and letting the alum being interviewed think, reflect, and sometimes respond quite emotionally uh, to the interview and what's happening uh, during the interview. So I really want to Say thank you in in a way, to the students doing that work and taking that care uh, in these interviews to give space for the alumni voices to come through in the ways that they have done.
0: What was the alumni reaction when you reached out? I mean, um, these are folks. Did they know ahead of time that they were gonna be asked about this or was this out of the blue for some folks? And if so, I guess, what did they think about you uh, reaching out to contact them?
1: Well, the first group of um, people we worked with in terms of interviewees, alums that offered or were invited to be interviewed and and accepted that invitation, I I had kind of gathered some names uh, in the year leading up to the offering of the course when we would be collecting these oral interviews, there's a lot of groundwork going on in the background and that I wanted a group of alums who understood the project, understood what was going to happen, and would be available in a particular window because in a semester it had to happen in a, in a timed sort of way. So. I had been emailing folks back and forth to not so much get their consent because that's a formal aspect of the oral history that comes along at the time of the oral history, but to to have them on board, um, have them understand that we need them to be available in a particular two week window. Um, and so I think they were all um, people who'd either who I knew or were contacted through contacts I had, so it was very a very small network at first, if you will. Um, but we have an, an online form where um, alumni can signal their interest in being uh, interviewed and contributing an oral history. So other people started learning about it that way and through other events like an alumni event we had down in New York City um, to talk about the project and, and other work that being done on campus in terms of LGBTQ. Student identified students. So it's 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 a growing list of people, and in fall '20, the work of the students in the class expanded to um, faculty and staff as well as alums. So we're now collecting oral histories from people who are currently at Colgate, who have taught at Colgate, who have served. as LGBTQ Initiatives Directors at Colgate. Ooh, so we're expanding the, the pool of people who were um, being interviewed. And so at this point, it, I wouldn't say it's, What I'm thinking about it is the snowball is starting to roll on its own, <laughs> but the very first group of alums um, was uh, generated through personal contacts and, and contacts of those
0: contacts. One one more question for Mackenzie and Jacob here. I'm, I'm curious, in your work in both the working on the timeline and the oral histories, was there ever a moment where you stopped and were like, wow, this is this is kind of a wild piece of history I'm I'm looking at right now? And do you have any examples of of that?
6: Yeah, um, so I have a lot of wow moments doing these interviews, honestly. Um But one that was really interesting for me, once again, with the the first rounds of interviews, um, like when I was in the class, and I was interviewing someone who graduated in 1989. um, And just through some of my other work, I had heard this kind of like, legend of what happened with um, the Deke fraternity, and when the ledgers were stolen from the temple, and then like, the things that those reveal. Oh yeah, you've got to
0: start over and say what the legend is. I, I have never heard oh,
6: of it. okay. Um, so <laughs> the short version is that in the spring of 1989, ledgers were stolen from um, the like little temple building that's next to what used to be the Deke Frat House. Um, and these ledgers revealed just horrible, terrible things that had happened. Um, sexual assault, racial incidents, things along those lines. Um, And then they were stolen and they were made public. And then there were large protests on campus about Greek life and the ways that Greek life was affecting culture. And there were a lot of discussions about whether or not Greek life should still have a place on campus. Um, And these conversations involved students, faculty, staff, administration, everybody. And so I had kind of heard this legend of this wild thing that happened. Um, And then I was talking to this alum. Who was here when that happened and who was actually working in i think it was called the women's resource center at that point like the precursor of what is now the center for women's studies um the night that these documents were stolen and that's the where th- whoever stole them delivered them to was the women's resource center and so she just like ended up with these documents on her desk and had to figure out what to do with them wow. um and so you know she handed them over to like the staff of the center and everything but to like hear the firsthand account of this thing that I had basically heard as like a Colgate urban legend sort of story to then be sitting down talking to someone who had like experienced it and played a role in it um, was very much just like a history brought to life sort of moment. Hmm.
7: Uh, I also have had quite a few wow moments, especially working through the archives and reading uh, like old newspapers um, that have all been digitized and being able to find, you know, stories of, of, you know, some really harmful things, you know, like marches because of, you know, sexuality and sensitivity, folks not understanding things. Um, I remember reading about the university and and the organizing that happened here during like the HIV and AIDS epidemic and what it looked like to sort of live in a bubble um, during that time. But one of the the most recent wow moments, at least for me, uh, happened last semester during an interview I was doing. Uh, of someone who was a senior when I was a first year. Um, And I didn't realize how much of the history that we were talking about was happening right before that, uh, like right before my arrival. Um, And one of the things they talked about was uh, the student organization Queer Trans People of Color started in the year 2016. And the student I was talking to, well now alumnus I was talking to, talked to me all about what You know, pushed students to split off from the organization Lambda, which is you know the the, was the main LGBTQ organization at the time, and what creating that space meant for him and for the other folks who helped create it, and for me, you know, QTPOC, um, queer trans people of color, uh, and Lambda were just staples of the community by the time I arrived. They just they existed there, and I hadn't realized something as recently as a year before my first year there were students making very real change and and creating very real space for themselves. So that really stuck out to me as uh, a massive wow moment that I was like, these are things that, you know, we as students can do. Um, So yeah. That's great.
0: Professor Humphrey, I'm curious how you plan on rolling uh, all of this work into uh, your course. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the course in general and, 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 you know, how, how you might use the work.
8: Sure. Um, so the course is LGBT220, so it's, it's, um, one of the, um, good things about this course is it's conceived in a way that it can be of many iterations. Um, and so the iteration of the course that I'm teaching this semester, um, despite having the same code and number, it's, it's not the same iteration that, um, that Ken has been, um, teaching for the past few years. Um, and so what I'm planning to do with the, um, with the archive is have students use it um, as a resource to help them think about what is important when we think about LGBTQ history. Um, and so um, part of the course is thinking about whose histories get told um, and whose histories get written. And one thing that's really compelling about this archive is the fact that they are oral histories. Um, and an oral history is, in and of itself, very different to, to a written history. Um, and um, as, a, as an oral history of activism, it's also something that's, that's very different. And so I want the students to engage with it um, in that way and then use it for this way. To think about um, this is what we had as history um, on Colgate's campus. Now, how can we see these, um, these same issues um, or these same kind of um, topics come up elsewhere and use it as a springboard that way? And so to link the more global. Um, context that we're we're talking about um to the very local context in which we all are so that's yeah that's how i'm i'm envisioning using it um
0: nice i'm curious too uh is there um i guess did you create in doing this work do you see this as a template for future initiatives you know, outside of LGBTQ studies. So, Sarah, in particular, I'm curious, University Archives, um, is this something, a format that can be, you know, used for other things?
2: Absolutely. Um, And for me, it's really been a huge learning experience. Uh, One, it lays bare just how much work goes into these projects. Uh, The original idea was envisioned as a three-year arc Um, So that first year was really setting up a lot of the contextual information. But if we hadn't done that, I don't think the future classes would have had that nuanced understanding of maybe some of the topics or the items that the alumni or faculty or staff were discussing. So they already had that background. So building that base, I think was really important. Um, But, you know, adding to the archive and filling in those gaps that we know exist, that's hugely important. So I'm seeing this as a way to establish a model for how we can continue the work of representing representing and gathering those voices that either have been silenced or just haven't been heard over the years. Um, we know there are gaps. It's gonna take a long time to continue filling them. Um, to really create a more robust historical record that gives us a more inclusive and accurate history. Um, But even some of the the small things that I've learned through this project, uh, just um, that first year when Jake was in the class and he just offhandedly mentioned QTPOC and I'm like, wait a minute, what is that? (laughs) Look, it's a new student organization. I don't know about it. I need to collect the records. So it's this ongoing learning about what's going on at the university what organizations do we need to really build those connections with so that we make sure their history as it's being developed is really being, um, you know, collected and gathered. Um, But one of the exciting pieces that I really appreciated about this project is the time that we spent considering the ethics of our work and having a decided approach to the work. So we made sure that we were very considerate of people's identities, their stories. Um, You can imagine there's a lot of private information that can filter into these histories. So how do we make sure we're giving people the agency agency to tell their own stories on their own terms? Mm. So even if someone's telling a story and mentions someone else's name, are we being respectful of that other person and making sure that it also respects their privacy? So I think that there are other uh, similar interview oral history projects that have happened that in Colgate courses, um, but this one working directly with the archives I think sets up a great model for how other courses and other disciplines uh, could really set up a theoretical model to pursue creating oral histories to fill in those gaps in the university archives.
0: That's interesting, uh, and yeah. it's good. Oh, go ahead, Ken.
1: Yeah, I would say I would be absolutely delighted if this becomes. The impetus for people to think about projects uh, that are collaborative. I mean, I, the thing that's been a thrill for me and a joy in all of this is the collaborative aspect. The the involvement of students and the continued involvement of McKenzie and, and Jake really I think working as part of a team with Professor Keen and myself and uh, uh, about in talking through some of the challenges that are arising about sensitive material, and they're making terrific suggestions. And so I, I feel there's a lot of energy, collaborative energy here. Um, I I did want to take this opportunity to say, uh, although Professor Keen spoke about a three-year arc, I, I would agree that my in my vision was a three-year project. But I I Positioning um, Professor Humphrey to take on the project <laughs> and take it forward in in ways that make the most sense. Um, I'll step back from the project and and he'll take it up um, with Professor Keen. So um, you know it's the end of the first phase of the project. Perhaps uh, this three-year arc is coming to a close. Um, the other thing I was just I was just going to mention here um, is that I think. As much as this project is interesting, um, I think the connection of what we do as an academic institution and the archive is important. And by that, I mean, when we created LGBTQ studies uh, and had it approved in 2009, um, I spoke with Professor Keene around that time or shortly after that time. And I had a lot of digital documentation about the creation of the program. I had a lot of what we'll call ephemeral material in my office posters flyers um i gave a collection of my own t-shirts to the archive (laughs) but i I think the point i want to come back to is that we were able to document the creation of our program um and we've given most of that material or gave most of that material to the archive shortly after the program was established so i'm i'm i a lot of what this project, not what the project entailed, but where my mind was when I was thinking about this project. I was thinking about activism as history, which is something we all understand, looking at activism historically. But I wanted to flip that and think about history as a form of activism. That documenting the things we do, the lives we lead, the experiences we have, is its own form of activism. And sometimes we're so caught up in the moment, and I know this through other work I've done um, with LGBT communities. Um, we're, we're engaged in doing the work, but we're not very good at recording the history that we claim then we don't have. <laughs> so it, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of dilemma, but I wanted to create a space where the history the telling of history, the collecting of history, the curating of history is the form of activism that we'll engage with. Hmm. But one other aspect about this project, we wondered, uh, Professor Keene and I wondered about continuing it in fall 20, knowing that I would be teaching the course remotely. And I didn't want to lose the momentum. I was eager to collect more of these oral histories or eager for my students to collect the oral histories. And we decided to do it using Zoom, which of course everybody was using Zoom anyhow. And and in a way we're documenting not only Colgate's queer history, but the COVID moment as well. Because if you look at the video, oral histories we did in fall 19, they're all, I wouldn't say formal, but people are on their best behavior. And now in 20, in fall of 20, we have people going to the door because um, Amazon delivery arrived and I need to pick that up.
2: <laughs> so there's, a,
1: there's an informality about the recordings and the oral histories we're, we're gathering right now, which is capturing this moment in time as well.
6: Well, and going back to what was said earlier about like how we're not supposed to speak during the interview because it's like them telling their story, that's one thing that I've enjoyed about the switch to it just being me on my laptop wherever I am. Because when I did my first round of interviews as part of the class, I was in the studio um, and Rich Grant was controlling the recording. And the conversation started when Rich Grant <laughs> pressed record and the conversation ended when he ended it um, versus now I can stop the recording of Zoom and then continue the call. Um, and then I'm able to, um, that's when I can fill people And that's when I can tell people, especially like I make notes while they're talking about things that they're saying they hope changed or they wonder if they change. And then once I stop recording, so I'm not ruining the integrity of this oral history, um, I've had some really amazing moments of being able to like pleasantly surprise people with my stories of what it's like to be on campus now and all the things that they were saying they wish had changed that have now.
2: Awesome. Yeah, yeah the, and the process of collecting around COVID-19 is probably a whole other podcast because <laughs> we're trying to actively document and collect while something is happening. Right. Um, and it's been interesting to see the submissions that we've received so far. Um, but yeah, this. Even that fall 2020 class, I was teaching remotely, Ken was teaching remotely, the class was all remote, um, and thinking what electronic materials or digital yeah. materials do we have available, knowing that most of the archive is physical, um, was a bit of a challenge. We overcame it. Um, I certainly got a lot, of, a lot out of it. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, an interesting experience. We had the, the Zoom sort of zoomification of our culture is just a whole other moment.
0: It's a good segue into my next question. It was gonna be uh, directed toward Professor Keen as well. And that is, how does the university archive decide what goes into it, right? So when you look back at all of this history and you know people trying to dig through to find these various histories that may or may not have been reported as much in the past, like what is the university's process for taking in material or deciding what material we're going to keep and uh, I, i'm guessing this is probably an entire podcast episode but in brief um and uh also just how many things do we have how, how much stuff does colgate have in the archive
2: um not enough <laughs> 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 we need more um because yeah I, I know that there are stories and elements of our history that we just, we know happened, but we just don't have firm documentation of them. Um, sometimes if it's early documentation, we can blame it on the the fire that happened in the administration building in 1963. It's like, oh, that student record probably burned up in that fire. Um, but then I, uh, when I've been here for just over 10 years now, and one of my charges when I came here was really to establish the archive as um, you know a professional operation, um, and to really make it a thriving living space. Um, so working with the other members of my department to organize the records, understand what we had, what we were missing. Um we then started working to establish relationships with offices, departments, individuals on campus. Um, we learned, you know they', you know, in one particular office they had like 30 cubic feet stored in off in a closet and we're like, yes, we need that material. that's 30 years of history that we're missing. <laughs> um, so it's you know, developing those collections, but what we collect is in, a, in essence documenting, the university writ large. So there are the various elements. There's the academic programs, there's offices, there's the students, the staff, the faculty. We try to document the activities. And sometimes we throw out standard document types. Um, So one routine type of that can help us understand how the university work is meeting minutes. So if you have committees and they generate minutes, that helps us understand how decisions are made so that's one sort of granular item um, but as you've heard professor valente mentioned there are other elements like t-shirts that help us tell our story um, now we're delving into um, more electronic records and social media and websites um, and using those different types of sources to help tell our story and now we're adding audio um, we've had a long history of. Audiovisual visual materials so you know audio recordings radio station recordings um films various video productions over the years so it's a wide variety of formats
0: do you keep um, podcasts
2: yes and we need to have a conversation about that <laughs> asking for a friend <laughs> yes we do try to collect all university publications um but I'm one archivist and we have a very active community, so it's a never ending (laughs) job. Um, So I know there are, you know, things we're probably missing, but, um, you know, establishing a framework and developing those relationships with people so that they, you know, see a publication or, you know, understand the work that they're doing and seeing how it could then um, wind up in the archives one day. Um, So, you know, this is... One efforts that's generated by an academic class, um, but we have you know for, more formal records management processes where records are transferred to us, um, working with the more administrative offices. Um, so it's it's a sort of complex operation. Um, the university, as you all probably know, changes all the time, so we're trying to keep up with that. Um, but you know that's just makes our jobs interesting on a never-ending <laughs> basis. So it's. Mm.
0: Nice. Uh, We're at question 13. Uh, This question uh, is for everyone. Um, And um, yeah, if, if you have something to add, that's great. If not, don't worry about it. But I'm curious if there's one or maybe more than one moment in Colgate's history that you wish you had more information about for this project. I know it's hard to say what you don't know, but um, at the same time, there are known things, right? That maybe you can't prove, or that you just have no. Maybe a person is gone. Or I'm curious if there are any things that you wish you had. If there's any missing pieces to this research that could really, um, you know, that it could benefit
2: from. There's one item, or there's an item that came up in our discussion, our project meeting discussion last week, that I think. Is We hope to fill this gap future in, in the future with the project, but it's also just a vacuum of experience and history that we have now, um, is the experiences of uh, students now alum from the 50s, 60s, maybe even the 1940s. Um, we know there were queer students on campus, but there's no documented history. Um, so how can we gather those stories you know, are those stories out there recorded somewhere? We just don't have the material, Um, but I'm really hoping we can fill in some of those um, older uh, stories from the 50s and 60s, maybe even 40s.
6: We also have a strange gap in the 1990s. We have lots of alums from the 70s and the 80s, and then from 2000 all the way until like 2018, you know, very recent alums, but something about the 90s. We're just missing those voices and those stories. And we have a few speculations as to why, Um, but we also know from looking in the archives and like Maroon News um, material and that sort of thing, that there were events on campus at that time and like there were important things happening. And we hear stories that are starting in the 80s that we're sure then continue into the 90s. And so I'm really hoping that we can find some people to tell those stories.
1: Um, In particular, I think um, one of the things Mackenzie's talking about in the 90s was a conference that was held at Colgate called Breaking Down Society's Closet. And um, I recall the event, Um, I had very limited involvement in in the sense of being an audience member, um, not involved in the organization of it, which I think was student-based. Um, I have a t-shirt from it, and that now is in the archive. Um, so we know this happened. It was written up in the news. But we, the conversations that gave rise to it, the planning that went into it, it happened. I would love to know more about it. And it's in that period of the 90s where we'd like to know more. Um, so alums from the '90s, please be in touch. We'd we'd love to to have you add your voice to the collection. Yeah, I was going to yeah. add it,
0: if there are alumni listening uh, right now that do want to contribute to this project, what would be the best thing to do? Contact Professor Humphrey.
8: Indeed, it would. Um, we do have a um, a form that is on the website that is has now been created, um, and so that's a great way um, to get in touch with us. Um, and it will get directed to, to Professor Valenti um, and me um, as as a form. And yeah, that's, uh, it is something that I'm very look, much looking forward to is continuing this, um, this project forward. Um, but I'm actually probably the newest person at Colgate um, who is here right now. Um, so if I were going to say what I want to hear about Colgate's history, I think it'd be very remiss not to say that the person who kind of created this, the Professor Valenti, I'm very interested um, in that oral history, um, being mm. collected, um, and having students work on that.
6: We have asked about that multiple times. <laughs> yeah, quite a few times.
8: <laughs> I'm being very coy, but
1: I, I, we will schedule it for this spring. But I, as I say to students, I, you know, I've been at Colgate for over 30 years and that's a lot of time to get up to things. So I, mean, I hope what I've been up to is is, the, is good trouble in a way. Um, but they maybe you know they might need a week with me by the time this is over.
7: Yeah, Jacob. Well, one thing I actually just love about this project is that we you know we have newspapers with events, and we've got people talking about their experiences at them. Um, but you know, if, if there was something to sort of add, Uh, My favorite moments in every interview is when students talk about that day-to-day. And I remember when Professor Valente and I were, when I was in Professor Valente's class as a sophomore, and he sort of was sitting us down talking about what queer activism looks like. And I was wide-eyed. This was my first LGBTQ studies class, and I was very excited for the future. Um, We talked about the notion of just sort of existing on campus for this amount of time is activism. So all that, you know, good trouble that Professor Valente got up to while he was here, that's the the kind of stuff that really adds to this project. You know, we love to hear about events and we love to hear about experiences and organizing and formal activism, but we also love to hear about everyone's, you know, sort of day-to-day, especially as a student. What does it look like for someone who is sitting in this same spot? Well, maybe not this exact same spot. I don't know how long the apartments have been here, Um, but, you know, sitting in a similar spot, 20, 30, 40 years ago, thinking some of the same things I thought coming into college. Hmm.
0: That's great. Well, Thank you all for and coming on the program. Oh, go ahead, Ken.
1: Yeah, I was going to add something um, here, and it kind of takes us back a little bit, but uh, in terms of a recurrent theme, but it connects nicely to what Jake was just saying. I mean, for me, in these oral histories, what I sense is resilience, and, and we see that in queer communities. On college campuses and off college campuses, I mean, we've those communities have found a way to thrive and to live their lives um, authentically, and and that's what we want to document. We want to document those experiences, and and they may seem small things, but they're not small things. They 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 are very much relevant to what we are thinking of as activism, and I think the other thing that we're seeing as these oral histories grow is the kind of connections they make um, with other kinds of, I'll say, activism and support and the way lives are lived at Colgate. McKinsey's mentioned Haven and the connections of oral histories we've been collecting to Haven, uh, certainly to the Women's Studies Center, Um, QT Park as Jake has mentioned. But we're also gathering really important memories regarding the Colgate for All movement, which is a relatively recent event at Colgate's campus. The connections to other organizations that have always been supportive, uh, well, I will say, have been supportive of um, the LGBTQ community and and folks at Colgate, um, organizations like Sisters at the Round Table, um, Brothers. Peace House <laughs> is a fixed in the memories of many, many of the people who are speaking to us, how important Peace House, which I believe became Bunch House, was as one of those places that was identified or has been identified as a safe or safer space on campus. So the the way this project makes connections to other forms of support and organizations on campus. I guess the other thing I would mention is how in recent interviews, we're getting a sense of how important uh, first-gen voices are as well in, in the kind of intersectionality we're interested in and in trying to pursue through the project. Just an add another thing I really think is important, that um, sure. this project really wouldn't be where it is without the students I've worked with over the last three years, and they know who they are so i uh, you know want to take a moment and just thank them for going with this i i think there are moments when they thought what have i got myself into but they've taken on this project with integrity and seriousness and and the recordings we have are down to them uh and it's down also to the alums and the faculty and the staff who have um contributed those oral histories as well. So I want to thank
0: them as well. That was 13. Thank you, Professors Valente, Keane, and Humphrey. And thank you, uh, Mackenzie and Jacob, for joining the program. If anyone has any questions that they want to ask, uh, you can always email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And uh, we'll be happy to try and get some answers for you. Uh, until next time, uh, be well and keep asking questions. Is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by catrail Pritz. Executive producer Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in depth faculty research stories.